Welcome to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. We're excited to share this week's message with you. Our mission is to allow God to work in and through us, and we'd love to hear your story of how God has been working in or through you. Email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in and through you. We've been talking for a few weeks about seasons, and we've been on this journey sort of um, by accident in some ways, but we've been on this journey as we talk about stewarding seasons in our life, and this whole thing started as um, I was just reflecting on Jesus's life as I was kind of immersing myself in the Gospels in the New Testament and, and, and immersing myself in the story of what led to the cross. I just was overcome with um, this this new idea, for me at least, it was a new idea that, that Jesus understood how to steward the seasons of his life and his ability to understand who God was, who he was, what God does, and what he was called to do allowed him to be effective in living out the purpose and call of God on his life. And when you contrast that to my life or maybe your life, so often I feel so, um, so aimless. I feel like I don't know what season I'm in sometimes. I can't discern what's happening around me. I feel fruitless. I feel overwhelmed. I feel um, disempowered. I feel like, you know, I'm repeating the same things over and over again. But Jesus lived a different kind of life. And in 33 years of life and only three years of ministry, he was able to fully accomplish everything that God put him on the earth to do. I believe that you and I have a divine calling and assignment on our life. We've got a unique calling. Each one of us does. And Jesus is just kind of setting an example for us of what it's like to to actually steward the seasons of your life well. And I got to thinking in the last few weeks, it seems like we're just in a crisis of hope in our country and across the world right now. We're in a crisis of fear and anxiety. We're in a crisis in our country and in our society. And I just feel like God said to me, you know, one of the, the big reasons as to why we're in this crisis is because we have no clarity about the future. We have no vision or clarity about what's coming next. So we're confused about today. We're walking around in the fog today because we don't have a clear vision for what's coming next. And we're going to spend a few weeks, I don't even know how long, we're going to spend a few weeks talking about what's coming next because I believe that as God brings clarity to us for what is coming next, it will spark new purpose and new vision for your life, new hope for your life, new strength for your life. The early disciples, the early Christians were marked by this incredible vision for what was coming next. They lived their lives for this greater purpose, to fulfill this clearer picture. And somehow in our churches and in our society, we've lost it. 
We've lost our, our vision for the future. And because we have no vision for the future, we don't know where we are today. I believe that God wants to restore and return clarity to you, vision and purpose to you. He wants to restore hope to you. He wants to restore faith to you. He wants to actually restore to you the tools that you need to step into the calling that he's put on your life. We already read Revelation 21, 1 to 7, and I want to show you, I talked about the Greek word for that, that word new, but when, when Jesus said, and when God said to John, behold, I'm making all things new, I want to clarify one thing at the outset before we even get into talking about the specifics of the afterlife in heaven. That original Greek word, we have, um, we have the definition up here for you, and I just want to show you it because it will frame the context of everything that we're talking about. That word new is Greek koinos. Can you pull that up, Robert? And... That word means fresh, regenerated. It means renewed. But it's not speaking specifically about making something out of nothing that's new. It's speaking specifically about returning something to its original intent and design. So when God says, I'm making all things new, He's not saying I'm going to obliterate the earth. I'm going to obliterate your life. I'm going to obliterate the heavens. He's not saying that. He's actually saying I'm going to return it. I'm going to restore it and refresh it to its original design, its original power, its original capacity. For us, when we talk about all things being new, and we talk about the future, I feel like one of the things that we get tripped up on that, that kind of sets us off right away is this idea that what's coming next will be unfamiliar. That what's coming next is something to be feared. I think it's like the second or third slide there. Um, this idea that that we have, I don't know even where we got it, but this idea that we have, that newness means unfamiliarity, is wrong. This idea that we have that the, the coming kingdom of heaven and eternity with God will be unfamiliar is wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Jesus taught. God has made us physical He's given us bodies for a reason. Our eternity with him does not consist of disembodied, vapor-like spirits floating around in clouds. That's not what's waiting for us. Every time the Bible talks about the kingdom of heaven and eternity with God, it uses language that's both physical and familiar. God talks about heaven in physical and familiar languages because he wants us to experience the joy that comes from anticipating something that we can imagine. There's a verse that maybe some of you have heard and it's most of the time only half quoted. And it says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can understand what God has in store for them. 
And so based on that, we go, well, there's nothing that we can know about heaven. There's nothing we can know about the afterlife. But that's only the first half of the verse. The whole second half says, but God has revealed it to those by his spirit. He's actually revealed it to us. There's no reason that we need to look at all of the scriptures that talk about heaven and just assume they're allegory. There's no reason for that. There's a reason that the Bible talks about heaven in physical, material, and familiar ways. Because it's true. And so, as we begin this discussion and as we walk this journey together, I I want you to know that when Jesus was saying, I'm going to make everything new, a new heavens and a new earth, he wasn't saying, hey, you're going to get there and you're going to be a loner on the side. You're not going to know anyone or anything. He's, He's not saying that at all. He's saying, look, when everything's made new, you're going to recognize it and you're going to see it in all its fullness and all its completeness. I was driving by Niagara Falls this morning like I do every Sunday, and I was just saying, God, I can't wait to see Niagara Falls when it's made new and restored, when the thundering waters that pour over that lip are as they should be, when everything is perfected. I'm going to look at that, and if I think that I'm marveling now, my mind is going to be blown then because I'll have a chance to talk to you, God, directly about it. I'll be able to ask you questions about it. I'll be uninhibited in my ability to to talk with you and commune with you. I'll be walking with you and your presence as I look at this marvel of your creation. That's the hope that the early church had. It's the hope that John had as he was exiled on this island. It's the hope that the disciples had, that there's something on the horizon that is not unfamiliar. It's not frightening. It's familiar. It's tangible. It's something we can grasp and understand because God has made us for it. I want to show you, hopefully, a little graphic. Should be up there. Maybe if we find that, then we'll find the other one. But um, this is just... A quick timeline, you don't need to maybe write all this stuff down, but I wanted to give you just a really uh, big bird's eye view of kind of where we're going in the next few weeks. So God started, you know, from eternity past, the book of Genesis opens with creation, where God is making things uh, physically, where he's designing the universe and the earth, and he makes us, and at a certain point, In the garden, God said to Adam and Eve, he said, you can do anything you want. And God had given them incredible purpose. Man, I wish we could go into, actually, the significance of the uh, partnership that God had for Adam and Eve in stewarding the earth, in partnering with him, because that's actually what he wants us to return to. So we're not making everything new. We're not obliterating. We're returning Back to God's original design. He's never given up on his original heart for us to walk in his presence on the earth in authority, in power, and to have dominion over the whole earth. He's never given up on that. It's still in his heart. And even though things happened in the garden and things went sideways and sin came into this world and it it separated us from the presence of God, After Adam and Eve sinned, God said, 
We have to banish them for the garden because they haven't yet eaten the fruit of the tree of life. And if they do, they'll have eternal life. So in the garden, man had not yet possessed eternal life, but it was within his grasp. It was within his reach in the garden. And God removes man from the garden and the earth and man, the whole of God's creation, the whole cosmos comes under a curse from sin. And the effects of sin begin to entangle and ensnare and enchain the whole earth and all of God's creation. Paul said in Romans that the whole earth groans in anticipation, God's whole universe groans in anticipation to be liberated again to its original design, the structure of how it was meant to be. And Jesus comes onto this earth and he restores a possibility for us to have relationship, but we still are in this in-between where we're walking on a cursed and fallen earth, but we're walking now again with the presence of God and God's invitation. It's all through the Gospels. Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven more than anything else. It's all there, and he says, you can bring that authority and dominion back to the earth, to the places that your feet step. My kingdom will be present. And when my kingdom is present, healing and hope and peace and life and joy are present. My justice is present. You can bring my kingdom to earth. And what God is doing now is he's reclaiming this earth for his purposes. He's pushing back the effects and the assignments of the enemy on the earth. And then one day the Bible says that after he's defeated death and the devil for a final time, he's going to renew and regenerate all of heaven and all of earth. And the most amazing thing about this, we're going to get into this, is that he says, heaven is not a place you go. It's a place I come down and inhabit. When God talks about eternity with him, it is one always on the earth. It's never somewhere else. It's always here. Eternity with God will be here in a physical, familiar place. Again, God's heart will be to walk with us and we will on this earth for eternity. He will set our purposes free and set us free to fulfill his call on our lives individually. For eternity, we're gonna walk on this earth with him. This is the hope that the early church lived for. And this is the hope that somewhere along the way we've lost and forgotten. It's like a dim flicker in the shadows of the night and God is saying, I wanna restore hope and I believe in your life and in my life one of the key ingredients to us recapturing peace and hope and strength in our life is to have a clearer picture of what's awaiting us. For those who accept Jesus as their savior, this is the hope that we have, an eternity with him. We're gonna talk about, over the next few weeks, some of the specifics that come with that. But I want to... Um, just answer a couple of questions as an introduction today really quickly. The first one is, um, well, all of them are really, why is it so important that we understand more fully 
what heaven is and what's awaiting us. And the first reason is that we do need hope. If you have your Bible, you can turn with me to the book of John. As Jesus was about to leave his disciples, they're sitting there going, what's going to happen next? How are we going to live without you, Jesus? How are we going to fulfill what you've called us to do? We need you, Jesus. Where are you going? And he explains to them what he's doing and where he's going. But listen to this, John 14, 1. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You need hope today. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, I would have told you what I have told you, that I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. Jesus uses tangible imagery to connect the dots for the disciples. He's saying, look, I know your heart is overwhelmed. I know you're struggling with hope. But don't be burdened and don't be overwhelmed because I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house, a physical structure. There are many rooms, physical structures. I'm going there to prepare it for you. And then I'm coming back and I'm bringing you there. This is the hope that we need. The hope that that one day Jesus will actually walk with us into the place that he's prepared for us. Not Casper the ghost floating around in the clouds somewhere, but real people, real bodies connecting with a real Lord, inhabiting a real space. If you want to turn with me to Hebrews 6, 18 and 19, it's a little bit further over. The writer of Hebrews talks about hope this way. These two things are unchangeable because it's impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge, that's Jesus, can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into the inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone there for us. He has become our eternal high priest. The reason we need hope is because it anchors us to something that's stronger and more powerful than us. You and I need a hope today that can anchor us so when the winds come and the waves come, we're not tossed to and fro like ragdolls. We need a hope in something greater than us, bigger than us. We need a hope in something that we can grasp and understand, a hope in something that's familiar. When we have a clearer picture of heaven and eternity, it fills us with hope and anchors us to something that can sustain us in the storm. I was thinking about this the other day, you know, often in the Bible, It says that God speaks quietly to us, that often he whispers to us because he wants that nearness with us. He's not shouting at you with a bullhorn. He's actually whispering because he's he's wanting you to get closer to him. 
But I think so often, I'm not sure exactly, but I, I want to say it's every time, I'm not sure, but so often when the Bible speaks about God speaking to our enemies, he's not whispering, he's shouting, he's roaring, he thunders over the water. God comes with flashes of lightning. God comes with thunder and he shouts and declares victory over our enemies. He may whisper in our ear, but he shouts to our enemies. And what he's shouting to the kingdom of darkness is there's nothing you can do to take away the hope for those who have faith in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that any enemy of God can do to rob us of the hope that we have of walking for eternity on this earth with our Savior in perfect relationship, fully alive, fully invested, full of purpose. There's nothing that any demon from hell can do to take that away from you that is secure because of what Jesus did. Understanding of heaven gives us hope. The second thing it does is it strengthens us. This is what the Bible said of Jesus in Hebrews 12, verse two and three. I'll read verse one, two. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses, to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Then note this, this is talking about Jesus. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, now he is seated in the place of honor beside God. What did Jesus do when he was praying in the garden? When he approached his father, when he was filled with anguish and sorrow, when he was, when he was so utterly ripped apart that he was sweating drops of blood, he said, Father, glorify me with the same glory I had before with you. Jesus is saying, Father, I have a vision of what it's like to walk with you, and that vision is giving me strength and joy. It's the joy that is set before me that's enabling me to push through this trial and this pain. It's the joy that is set before me that's giving me hope and strength. Jesus needed this, and we do too today. He had such a clear picture of what was coming the cross paled in comparison. The suffering and the torture that he experienced was nothing compared to the hope and the joy that was set before him. The Bible says in Nehemiah that it's the joy of the Lord that's our strength. We need strength today. Having a clear picture of what's coming will give us strength for the day and bright hope for tomorrow. Our world is, is being crushed under the weight of depression and anxiety, of fear and suicide. Did you know that mental illness is the number one disease globally? The number one. The enemy is having a heyday with your mind and with mine. He's wreaking havoc in our souls. Our emotions are like a, you know, a, a, a torrential, it's like Niagara Falls. He's having a heyday with us. And Jesus is saying, look, you have to set your mind on something that's higher and greater, something that's above what you're going through. That's exactly what Jesus did. 
as he walked to the cross, as he finished the season that God had called him to, as he completed the assignment, as he was faithful with everything that God had purposed for him to do, he needed a vision of heaven in order to make it through. We need that strength and that joy today. Number three, we need to understand heaven because we do need vision. Matthew 19 is a story. Jesus was pretty close to um, the events of the crucifixion and the cross from a time standpoint. And his disciples are sitting with him and this man approached him and said, Jesus, what do I have to do to follow you? He's a rich man. And, and in the end, uh, you know, Jesus listed off a bunch of things and that man said, I'm doing all of them, God. I'm doing all of them, Jesus. And then Jesus said, well, there's one more thing. You have to sell everything and give it to the poor. And the man went away discouraged. In the scene that was unfolding there, one of his disciples, Peter, said this to him, Matthew 19, 27. Peter said to him, we've given up everything to follow you. So what do we get? <laughs> That's a legitimate question. Peter's going like, what more do I have to do, God? How many times have you felt like you're in that spot where you're like, what more do I have to do? I feel like I'm being as faithful as I can be. I feel like I'm honoring you with everything that I know how to do. What more do I have to do? And to give Peter a vision for something that was greater than himself, this is what Jesus said. I assure you that when the world is made new, that's the same a Greek word koinos. So when the world is renewed, another translation says at the renewal of all things. So Peter approaches Jesus heavy and burdened. He approaches him discouraged and he approaches him kind of um, with confusion. And Jesus doesn't address that confusion. He, he says, Peter, I want to tell you about something greater that's about to happen. Because you need a vision for your life that takes you out of the muck and out of the garbage that you're in, that, that, that lifts you above the confusion, that lifts you above the heaviness. You need a vision for something. He says that the renewal of all things, the Son of Man sits upon his glorious throne. You who have been my followers will do also, and I'm just butchering this, you will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or property for my sake, get this, will receive it a hundred times as much in return and will inherit eternal life. But many who are great now will be least important then. And those who seem least important now will be greatest then. I love how Jesus addresses the familiar with Peter. He says, I know you've given up family. You've given up your work. You've given up your home. But I want to tell you, Peter, when I renew everything, you're not only going to see the restoration of everything that you've laid down for me, but because of my goodness, I'm going to increase it a hundred times or more. Jesus gives Peter this vision for something. Did you notice that he didn't scold Peter for seeking a reward? Did you notice he didn't chastise Peter for saying, hey, that's inappropriate, Peter. You should never want to get something from your relationship with me. 
Did you know that actually Jesus addresses this need in us? We're gonna talk about this, this need for reward. It's biblical to actually desire something from God. The question is, what do we desire? But he addresses this need in Peter to have purpose and fulfillment. Paul, one of the greatest apostles, I love this story. 2 Corinthians 12. Paul's talking to the church in Corinth. And he says, this boasting will do no good, but I must go on. I will reluctantly tell. So get this. I'll reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. I was caught up into the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. I probably wouldn't either. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside of my body. But I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. This experience is worth boasting about, but I'm not gonna do it. I will boast only about my weakness. If I wanted to boast, I would be no fool in doing so because I would be telling the truth, but I won't do it because I don't want anyone to give me credit beyond what they can see in my life or hear in my message even though I have received such wonderful revelation from the Lord. I love this. I'd never caught this before. Listen to what's tied to this. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan, to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works in my weakness. God had given Paul this vision that was so incredible so vivid, so powerful, that it set him on a course in his life. It changed the trajectory of his life. He'd given him a vision for something so great that he actually needed a thorn in his flesh. Nobody knows what exactly he's talking about, but he needed something that grounded him again because he was literally on cloud nine. He needed something that grounded him on the earth. And so he was propelled powerfully by this vision God had given him. But he was walking in humility and gentleness on the earth the way that Jesus modeled. We need a vision like Paul had, something so profound and powerful that it fuels us and propels us to our purpose and our destiny. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up. So what gets in the way? Brenda mentioned this a few weeks ago. Revelation 13, 6 says the devil in that passage, he's referred to as the beast, that he does three things. He blasphemes the name of God. So he lies about who God is. The devil lies about who we are. And he lies about the place that God is preparing for us. He doesn't have to convince you that heaven isn't true. Did you know that right now 70% of millennials believe in the afterlife? The issue for us is not believing in the afterlife. The issue is the distortion of truth about the afterlife. So the devil comes in and his goal is to lie to you about God. 
He wants to lie to you about the nature and the character of God. And then he wants to lie to you about who you are. He wants to undermine everything that is good and right about who God has made you to be. He wants you to believe things about yourself that aren't true, that Jesus has never spoken over you. He wants you to walk with the heavy burden of accusation and lies over you. And then he wants to lie about the place God is preparing for you because if he can, if he can somehow make it seem dull and boring and pedantic and awful, why would we ever want to go there, let alone tell anyone else about it? So his assignment on this earth, really, his mission is to discredit those three things. And he's been doing that since man has walked the earth and he's probably done it in your life too. And on this journey, we're on this journey to reclaim those three things. We're on a journey to reclaim the hope that we have in eternity. We're on this journey to reclaim the vision that God has given us, the, the same vision that propelled Jesus on the earth and Paul and the early disciples, the same vision that allowed them to lay everything on the line. He wants to cloud the shoreline for you. I want to read you a story. I think it's just so poignant. In 1952, a young woman named Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off Catalina Island, determined to swim to the shore of mainland California. She'd already been the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. The weather was foggy and chilly. She could hardly see the boats accompanying her. Still, she swam for 15 hours. You can do like one lap. Maybe now just a length, not even a lap. When she begged to be taken out of the water along the way, her mother in a boat alongside told her she was close and that she could make it. Finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and was pulled out. It wasn't until she was on the boat that she discovered the shore was less than a half a mile away. At a news conference the next day, she said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Just think about that. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have been able to endure that heartache and that sorrow. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have been able to resist the lies of the enemy over my life. If I think if I could have seen the shore, Jesus, those things that those people were saying about me and accusing me of, God, I would have been able to press through. I would have been able to find you. And Jesus is calling us to a season of seeing the shore. He wants to burn the fog away in your life and give you something to live for that's greater than your circumstances, that's greater than the trouble that you face, something that will give you vision and purpose again, ignite in the very depths of your soul the reason that you were made on this earth. God wants to cause that to come to life again. He wants to show you the shore so that you'll keep swimming. I want to invite you to stand with me.
I'm gonna read a long passage of scripture, but I can't say it any better than they do. I wanna read this over you because we need faith today. We need faith today. You need hope and I need hope and we need vision. So Jesus, even as I read this, I just invite your presence. That the words that come out of my mouth that come from your word, that they would bring faith and hope and life and joy and peace. That you would renew our vision and our purpose for you. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It's the evidence of things we cannot see. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned good, a good reputation. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command and that we now see did not come from anything that has been seen. It was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man and God showed his approval of his gifts. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who pleased God. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God who warned him about the things that have never happened before. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and he received the righteousness that comes from faith. It was by faith that Abraham obeyed when God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as an inheritance. He went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land, God promised him he lived there by faith for he was like a foreigner living in tents. And so did Isaac and Jacob who inherited the same promise. Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child though she was barren and was too old. She believed that God would keep his promise. And so a whole nation came from this one man who was as good as dead, a nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, there is no way to count them. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they would have gone back but they were longing for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was really to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. 
It was by faith that Isaac promised blessing for the future of his sons, Jacob and Esau. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was an old man dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would never leave, or would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. It was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was a boy. They saw that God had given him an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. It was by faith that Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to share the oppression of God's people instead of enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He thought it was better to suffer for the sake of Christ than to own the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his great reward. It was by faith that Moses left the land of Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He kept right on going because he kept his eyes on the one who was invisible. It was by faith that Moses commanded the people of Israel to keep the Passover and to sprinkle blood on the doorposts so that the angel of death would not kill their firstborn. It was by faith that the people of Israel went right through the Red Sea as they were on dry ground. But when the Egyptians tried to follow, they were all drowned. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho for seven days and the walls came crashing down. It was by faith that Rahab, the prostitute, was not destroyed when the people in her city who refused to obey God, for she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of faith of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms, ruled with justice, and received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned into strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back again from death, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning and some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith, yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us, so that we would not reach perfection without him. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let's strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us off. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith because of the joy awaiting him. He endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Father, in Jesus' name, may that word of yours stir faith. May it renew hope. May it uncover hidden and lost potential. 
Father, in the name of Jesus, I just declare hope and vision and life and peace over us again. We need a vision of your kingdom. God, would it come today, not just in the future, not just in some far off place, but God, would your kingdom come today in our lives? Would you give us the grace and the faith? God, would you show us the shoreline? Would you show us your goodness? Would you show us your glory and your power again, God? Father, would you allow us to rise above the weariness of our souls in this world and give us a vision. Give us a vision again of you. We hope that you are challenged and inspired by what you heard today and that you're willing to allow God to work in and through your life in bigger ways this week. We'd love to stay connected with you on social media, facebook.com slash mountainparkchurch and instagram.com slash mountainparkchurch. Finally, if you have a story of how God has been working in and through you, we'd love to hear it. Just email us at mystory@mp.church and tell us how God has been working in your life lately.